Hey buddy, I hoid the droughts moving in, muscling in on your turf. To make matters worse, the man keeps telling you to limit your spigot. That drought is bad news, no fooling. But me and my boys can help. The water boys, on the water zone, Thursday nights at six. We'll help you protect your turf and save water. And hey, don't worry about it. Consider it a gift. Yeah, Louie, you heard the boss. We gotta listen in at 6 p.m. on Thursday nights. Okay, Vinny, you got it. The water zone, Thursday nights at 6 p.m. I'll tell our lawn it's now protected. From the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 10:50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful downtown San Bernardino. Thank you for tuning into the Water Zone Show. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Starr, and uh, Mr. Mike Barron is off tonight because our show is dedicated tonight to our ag group, and we have our co-host uh, Miss Inge Bisconer and Mr. Paul McFadden. And guys and ladies, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Rob. Uh, glad to be here. Yep. Did you like? Did you like the new music? We love the new music. It's uh, <laughs> boy, I just want to get up and rock and roll with that. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get something a little bit more hep going. Hey, anybody wants to come in and join the uh, conversation? We got it. They have a great show tonight. The local number is nine zero nine eight 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 five two two two. And if you're calling outside the nine zero nine area code, you can do eight 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 nine zero nine ten fifty. And if you really want to see our faces, or at least mine, because I can't do Ingie's or Paul's tonight or anybody else, you can get to UStream TV and watch watch me there. And I'll I'll give you a big wave. So Ingie and Paul, I'll turn the show over to you and it's all yours all right thanks rob we're really excited to uh, have a theme tonight called lessons from oregon uh basically because uh last last month we were at an event in oregon and learned a whole bunch from our colleagues and friends uh in that state um as usual uh you'll you the uh listening audience can expect uh, uh some fantastic interviews from from our friends uh, Clinton Shock and uh, Jim Clouser tonight. So, guys, are I, you should be on the phone. Are you there? We certainly are. This is Clint, and Jim's right here with me. All right, wonderful. Well, um, I'm going to ask Paul to introduce you, Clint, and we'll dive right into it. Lessons from Oregon. Hi, Clint. How are you? Just great. So uh, let me introduce you to our listeners uh, you are a director and professor. You're a crop uh, researcher, irrigation management expert, a watershed uh, stewardship expert for Oregon State University, the Malheur Research Station in Ontario, Oregon. You've uh, contributed to horticulture. Your contributions to horticulture include scientific research and extensions that have has had a broad impact not only locally, but I know you work uh, both nationally and, and extensively on a global basis, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, your primary focus on a, is addressing issues critical to important, uh, importance to growers that have resulted in solutions with global as well as local impacts. Your priorities have been shaped by growers' needs 
rather than by a single commodity or academic discipline, a more holistic approach, if you will. You're active in numerous societies and affiliations, and your education includes a BA in uh, mathematics from the University of California, a master's degree from the, in horticulture from that same fine university, and a PhD in plant, uh, plant uh, physiology from the U- University of California. Wow, that's a mouthful. That was hard for Paul to say about the University of California because, you know, he's a Cal Poly guy. So, so thanks, thanks, Paul, for giving us the benefit of the doubt, us University of California folks. <laughs> that's, uh, that's outstanding. Uh, Clint, uh, you, you've uh, uh, come to be known as the voice of uh, uh, Oregon academia in precision irrigation. Not, not just Oregon, but uh, there's a lot of places in the world where I think you're held up as being the expert. Tell, tell us about your background, hailing from California, how you got into agriculture, and how you ended up in uh, at the Malheur Research Station in Oregon, of all places. Well, that's a, that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you for the uh, kind introduction, Paul. Um, I grew up, as a little kid, I always liked plants. And by the time I was an early teenager, 12 or 13, I wanted to use plants experimentally and uh, in production to try to improve the lot of people and growers. Uh, I grew up in Southern California with a lot of oranges and avocados, um, like you have around San Bernardino where you're broadcasting from, and uh, vegetable crops. So that's back to Orange County, California. Anyway, I've had the good fortune to work with family farmers in Brazil and here in Oregon for the last 33 years and elsewhere. So I've had the good luck to be able to do the things that I dreamed of doing as a young person. There's a lot of people that haven't had that chance to do that. You've uh, Well, you've done a great job at it. Uh, your your influence is is wide, quite a wide footprint there. Now, back in uh, February, when uh, Clearwater Supply, uh, and Jim, our, ne- our next guest, is from Clearwater Supply, uh, had their seminar up in Oregon, you gave a uh, pretty fascinating presentation about the history of some problems that Oregon farmers were experiencing back in the 1990s. You know, you're involved in all sor- sorts of different research, but maybe you can uh, tell our listening audience a little bit about that problem, you know, the, um, the environmental issues that you were facing, excessive nutrient losses and water runoff and groundwater contamination, things that we in California uh, are facing now as well and that we have talked about on this show. Tell us a little bit about what happened there and, um, and, and what you did about it. Uh, perfect. Yes, I've always shaped what, I'm, what I've been doing based on what the community needed. So in 1989, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality decided that this area where we work in eastern Oregon was going to be their first groundwater management area. And it had contamination of nitrate and breakdown products from the herbicide Dactyl. Um, Also had lots of problems with irrigation-induced erosion. The philosophy of the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality 
is that they wanted to come in and take over and basically prescribe how people were going to farm. Uh, we didn't feel like they had the uh, knowledge base to be able to do that, and that the an alternative philosophy would be to find ways to efficiently efficiently use inputs so growers could actually have more profit and use less inputs and uh, find cheaper ways to control weeds so the herbicide wouldn't get into the groundwater, basically find ways that would improve profit. And uh, it took about six, it took exactly six go-arounds of a plan until Oregon DEQ uh, allowed us to have the opportunity to try to show the governmental agencies, the EPA and DQ, that uh, growers would uh, study what we were doing in terms of research and adopt innovations that would uh, both use less inputs and increase productivity. So we were very fortunate to... Uh, be able to start a voluntary program. So you basically were able to show that by using new technology, which you did research on, that you could solve those problems and actually be more profitable at the same time rather than so voluntarily solve the problem as opposed to being told to do the problem, uh, to, to solve the problem. Is that is that kind of a correct statement? That's right. <clears throat> From the work that we did, in Brazil with family farmers and the average educational level of those people was third or fourth grade. Uh, I learned a great deal from them. We tested many different things and everything that we tried that actually worked got adopted. And uh, there's a philosophy that growers are very uh, conservative, that they won't innovate, that they'll just keep doing things the same way. Growers are conservative with money because they can't throw it away, but they're very innovative. Anything that they that they think will make money, that they can see, that they can observe, that they have confidence about the source of the information, those various factors that drive the adoption of innovation. Growers are very innovative they accept change, they uh, move on. And I learned that from very poor people in the interior of Brazil. Yeah, kind of the innovation process. Clint, I was just curious about the the work that you did in the 90s. Where is that study today, and what have you seen in terms of uh, progress uh, as a result of the work that you did? Well, at that time, uh, the there was almost 20 of the average amount of nitrate in the groundwater was 19 uh, parts per million, almost 20. And today it's around 10, uh, just a little bit over half uh, as much. Um, and the amount of uh, Dactyl residues in the most contaminated wells was around 600 parts per billion, and today they're about 20 or 30 parts per billion. So there's been... Uh, tremendous 
uh, improvement in the pesticide uh, contamination and considerable improvement in the nitrate contamination. And that's in spite of the fact that the groundwater changes over very slowly. So it, the groundwater moves from the sites of contamination very slowly. And growers do have to continue to um, feed their crops nitrogen. So you can't just go cold turkey on uh, nitrogen sources, whereas with the Dactol, we could find other chemicals that cost less, that work better, that uh, did a better job of controlling the weeds and less damage to the onions. And so that was uh, a relatively easy fix. Find herbicides that broke down into nothing, whereas getting the nitrate contamination to drop much slower. Also, there was we calculated that just locally in the area that was most contaminated, there was about 55 million pounds of nitrogen between the bottom of the root zone and the groundwater that hadn't reached groundwater yet. So when you have something like that hanging over your head, it's hard to get to really low level of nitrate in the groundwater quickly. What, uh, what role did the precision irrigation play in that uh, research? And, and, and then more generally, uh, how has it helped uh, or hurt pr productivity of Oregon farmers? Well, uh, of course, there's uh, two parts to this as far as the nitrogen goes. Uh, you've got to get the inputs of nitrogen so that they're timed better so that the crop can use it. And then you have to apply less water so that the ex excess water doesn't drive the nitrogen past the roots of the crop into the groundwater. So that the crop that seemed like it was having the biggest contribution to nitrate in the groundwater was onions. And we tried drip versus sprinkler versus furrow irrigated onions to begin with without knowing where the answers might be. And we were really surprised that we were able to produce more onions with drip irrigation than we could with the fur irrigated system. So then we set out to uh, adopt ways to perfect the drip irrigation and to schedule irrigation so it just matched what the onions needed. And that allowed uh, the possibility to increase the yield and quality of onions at the same time that we were using less fertilizer and less water. Yeah, and, and, and I guess we'll hear more from Jim about how that research got commercialized into uh, mainstream Oregon agriculture. Yeah, that's, that's just fascinating. So you were surprised that drip um, got a better crop and better yields than, than uh, flood putting on more water. So that, that, that's interesting. Now, in addition to the other, you know, to the traditional crops that you just mentioned, you have also done a lot of work with non-traditional and what we kind of call, quote-unquote, new crops. Tell us a little bit about that research and why you do it. I guess because I'm wacky. <laughs> a little crazy. Well, but, you are uh, from Oregon, so there's that quacky, uh, you know, that uh, duck thing going on. Oh, the quacky is the duck uh, from 
uh, University of Oregon. We're Oregon State, so we're. <laughs> I, I know. I was. I just had. To, I just had to go there. <laughs> we're, we're the beaver, Beavers, but. Uh, yeah. I know. I know. And you yeah, beat the, us uh, the, Busy the, Beavers. Uh, ducks, the ducks were having trouble with the beavers cutting down all the trees over on their <laughs> campus, and they finally <laughs> solved it by just erecting goalposts. Oh my goodness! Okay, new crops. Beavers couldn't get past the goalposts, so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, we've uh, we've tried a number of uh, native plants, grown native plant seed with drip irrigation. We've used drip irrigation on uh, a stevia. Just published an article in January on optimal uh, irrigation of stevia uh, with uh, drip irrigation. For, uh, I bet our listening audience may not necessarily know what stevia is. Could you just give a little thumbnail sketch on um, uh, uh, what might happen with it? Stevia is the uh, plant that has natural, non-caloric sweeteners. So rather than being an artificial sweetener, it's a natural sweetener. It has natural sweeteners. And uh, we've been working on stevia to uh, improve the taste of the leaves, remove bitterness from the leaves, and... In conjunction with that, then we've done variety tests uh, under dr- using drip irrigation, and then that, most recently that we did a, the whole sugar market, right? I mean, uh, no calories and sweet taste. I mean, that'd be fantastic. Well, the uh, it's taken over forty percent of the sweetener market in Japan, and uh, it's uh, has a growing amount of the sweetener market in the United States. Uh, sweetening. Products with stevia costs about 35% as much as sweetening with sugar. Just less expensive than uh, high fructose sugar, much less expensive than sugar, and um, you don't have uh, calorie uh, loads. Yeah, I've bitten into a stevia leaf in the field because often it's drip irrigated and it's incredibly, incredibly sweet. It's amazing. So native stevia, uh, 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 various trees, uh, work with potatoes, and a number of other crops. That's cool. Uh, Clint, uh, each year you write a Christmas letter that uh, summarizes your activities, includes an incredible amount of your work uh, you're doing international with some of these uh, exotic countries that uh, uh, some of our listeners uh, may have not even heard of. I know there's a few that I have to go look at the the map on. Please, if you would, share with our listeners what you learned from these experiences about the people, the relationships of ag and technology. You talked about the folks in the South America that were very poor, uh, but uh, that actually taught you a number of things. So I think if you had uh, some other uh, stories like that to share with our group, I think it would be uh, be interesting. We have we in the few minutes we have left. Well, the earliest professional work I did was in uh, out on the frontier in Brazil, and uh, I'm very lucky to have. Uh, a wife who's interested in the welfare of other people because we certainly didn't have any convenience, uh, no no power or telephone or <laughs> running water or anything for years. But uh, um, it was just uh, 
there's just there's so many gracious, beautiful people, uh, regardless of their ethnicity or where they live, had really uh, great experiences in in China, several countries in Africa, other countries in in uh, South America. The the people, the poor poor growers that we worked with in Brazil just taught us a great deal. And we well, still have quite a few friends down there and friends in, on Facebook that we had no way to communicate with for 40 years. And then the last four or five years, they've shown up on Facebook. Well, I really enjoy your Christmas letter every year and seeing where you and your wife and kids have been working. And it's uh, very inspiring, uh, the work you do and kind of making the planet smaller and bringing people together. And well, well, people, lots of places have similar problems. Uh, yeah. They have similar problems in needing to use water and nutrients more efficiently. Uh, when you use drip irrigation, you have the opportunity of introducing small amounts of nutrients uh, over the course of the season. You can monitor the soil. You can monitor the leaf tissues and know exactly whether you need to add more or not. Um, if you go back um, 27, 28 years ago, our growers were applying on average about 400 pounds per acre of nitrogen to grow onions, and they were harvesting in the crop about in the neighborhood of uh, 25 tons per acre and uh, approximately 125 pounds of nitrogen. Today, with drip irrigation, the growers are harvesting 40 or 45 tons. They're applying less than 200 pounds of nitrogen to the crop, and they're harvesting about 225 pounds of nitrogen in the harvested bulbs. So you get you go from a system that's really pretty sloppy in terms of nutrient management to a system where you can control the water, don't put on more water than what's needed to penetrate in the soil, and then recover more. Uh, you, you get to recover the fertilizer you applied and the residual nitrogen, a little bit of nitrogen that mineralizes in the soil. So you get a very tight system that's not sloppy and putting inputs uh, into the groundwater or off the end of the field. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's the innovation we have to do. we got more people and fewer inputs and a smaller planet, and and I, I hear you. Everybody's got the same problems. I was up in Ontario, Canada uh, two weeks ago, and at a table I had someone from the uh, Chesapeake Bay and another person from the Great Lakes and another person from a valley in northwest in B.C., Canada, and uh, me in, from California, and we we're all fighting the same issues that, you know, over overwatering and nitrate pollution of those waterways was an issue. And uh, There's many places where there just isn't enough water to go around. Uh, many places of China have great shortages of water. There's parts of Brazil where you could grow two crops, but there's not really enough water to grow two crops. Um, there's places in India and Nepal where they could grow two crops, but they don't really have enough water. 
And if they're not careful with the inputs, be they organic or inorganic, you end up with uh, uh, pollution. So the same kinds of themes or problems keep occurring in all these different parts of the world. Uh, with technology, we'll solve it. So uh, we're up on uh, station break. Uh, we'll continue the conversation. Thank you, Clint. And uh, uh, Rob, we'll hand it back over to you. I appreciate it. Clint, can I ask you just two quickie questions? Go ahead, bro. So I was interested in you, you talking about the onions before. And um, so, you, yes, you use uh, drip irrigation, but how do you know, how do they know how much water to put down? Do, you, do they use what's called, what I would call a smart controller with sensors to know when to water? And number one, and then the second part of that is uh, on applying the extra uh, nitrogen and things of that. Do they do that through the fertigation system into the drip system or is that done externally? Okay, answering the fertigation part first, uh, we put the nitrogen directly into the drip system and do it in a way so that the nitrogen gets distributed evenly throughout the whole field. Do that with other nutrients as well. So it's just about all fertigation. And that makes the, the nitrogen application very efficient and very uniform. So you grow just about the same crop in the poorer parts of the field and the better parts of the field. So it's very satisfying to grower because he doesn't have a patchwork of areas that are too wet or too dry, too, uh, too poor crop, too, too lush of a crop. And uh, as far as um, irrigation, well, uh, here we use uh, sensors, uh, soil moisture sensors, so we get the, uh, um, we don't irrigate too early. If you irrigate too early, then you add more water to the soil than what the soil can really hold, and then you push water through the profile, and you've got a very expensive drip system uh, because you're really defeating a lot of the uh, power of the system. Right. Uh, but if you have some way to measure the amount of water in the soil and irrigate at the right moment, then you just refill a small uh, depth in the soil, and... You don't push the nutrients through the soil. Great. So that's that's what we're doing, and that's the kinds of things that uh, Clearwater Jam, uh, in particular, has championed and made the system a commercial success. Oh, excellent. Well, I appreciate that, and thanks for joining us on the show. We're going to take a little break from our sponsors, and uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Water Zone on KCA Radio, NBC News Radio. We'll be back in the GIF. Welcome back to The Water Zone on KCEA 1050 AM. And uh, again, if anybody wants to join in the conversation, please do so. You can call 909-888-5222 or long distance at 888-909-1050. And uh, this is Ag Week, and we're going to turn it over to our micro-irrigation experts, uh, Inge Bisconer and Paul McFadden. Thank you, Rob. Uh, yes, uh, we're we're having Oregon night here tonight and lessons from Oregon. And I'd like to welcome our next guest, uh, Jim Clouser, uh from Clearwater Supply. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Hey, uh, Angie. It's good to hear from you again. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, a month since we uh, worked together up there in Oregon country, which, as you know, is dear to my heart, having ancestors that came over on the Oregon Trail. And you were so kind to drive me and let me stand on the Oregon Trail during one of our work trips once. So, um, 
Uh, Jim, let me let the uh, listening audience know a little more about you, and then we'll dive into some um, some conversation here. Very good. So, Jim, Jim is a sales agronomist for Clearwater Supply in Ontario, Oregon. It's a prominent Washington, Oregon enterprise owned by Brian and Denise Anderson. Prior to that, he was a research agronomist for a variety of pesticide firms, but was familiar with precision irrigation from his work in managing a research farm which had greenhouses that used drip irrigation. When he took the position at Clearwater, as Clint alluded to, only 3% of the farms in the Treasure Valley had used drip irrigation, whereas today 65% of them use drip. Jim worked closely with Clint and the Melher Research Station in developing best practices for precision irrigation in the area, and he was just recently honored as the Ontario Area Chamber of Commerce Agriculturalist of the Year at its annual banquet, January 13th, at the Four Rivers Cultural Center in Ontario. Big time congratulations, uh, Jim. I was so pleased to see you honored uh, with that award. Thank you, Angie. It was uh, it's, uh, very fulfilling to be able to speak to the group there and uh, be honored in such a way. So, Jim, your work in commercializing research concepts and helping farmers become better irrigators in the Treasure Valley didn't happen overnight, obviously. Tell us how you started and a little bit about the process. Were, were farmers receptive or were they skeptical? Oh, yes. Skepticism in the early days was uh, quite rampant. Um, a lot of this goes back to perhaps what Clint had mentioned, that uh, uh, you have to build trust. You have to... Uh, develop a working relationship and uh, develop a degree of mutual trust between the parties. What the progress I found was before I had arrived in 2000 here in the Treasure Valley to work with Clearwater, um, there were a number of forward thinkers that had already done a lot of homework, background, and thought. One of those forward thinkers, of course, is is Clint Schock, who spoke just moments ago. Uh, there was also a county extension agent by the name of Lynn Jensen that was also very involved in uh, forward thinking and w- ways to resolve our water quality issues here in the Treasure Valley. And also there was a gentleman by the name of Ron Jones from the NRCS that was quite instrumental in introducing uh, drip irrigation in a rudimentary way to a number of the growers of the area. From that point, it sort of moved to what uh, you could jokingly say the lunatic fringe. There were very few uh, sort of one-off growers that were playing with drip irrigation. In fact, many of them had tried drip irrigation um, almost 30 years ago, I found later. Uh, So it had been attempted uh, on a test plot basis through the years. But uh, by the time I came in 2000, we had moved to what I would call the early innovator phase, where there was a number of growers that had spent time talking with uh, Clint and Lynn Jensen and had seen that there were possibilities in which they could improve their crop quality and tonnage by the use of drip and were able to improve their profit margin by using drip 
and also in the process mitigate nitrate contamination and dactol contamination as well. And it's uh, been quite interesting that they 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 started in the early days. Uh, this is where the skepticism comes in. Is there were about six or eight growers here in the valley that were working with drip irrigation, and uh, all the growers knew of somebody 20 miles away that was doing drip. And then we moved a little bit further, um, four or five years later, and then everybody had someone within five or six year, miles of their farm and had a little chance to peek over the fence and see what was up. In this day and age now, uh, it's hard to go more than a mile or two, but what you don't come across growers that are actively growing onions with drip irrigation. So the uh, opportunities to investigate and gain confidence is much more widespread now than it was in the early days. So I have to say over the past 17 years that I've worked with drip irrigation here in the Shares of Valley, the growers have been continuously more receptive to the notion of irrigation. Uh, more recently, Inge, I might mention, is um, there's been quite a bit of proliferation into other crops, particularly in the last five years. We've moved from uh, onions, which is sort of our poster child for the Treasure Valley for uh, drip irrigation. We uh, now um, have moved over into hops, of which I can tell you about 90% of the hops grown in this valley are, and there's about uh, 6,000 acres currently, and that's due to increase dramatically in the next two years. Um, over 90% of the hops are grown under drip irrigation. We've moved over into mint, both spearmint and peppermint, uh, dry beans, sugar beet, corn, and a wide variety of uh, seed crops are currently also grown with drip irrigation. So for our listening audience, uh, what that means is more food that we can eat with fewer resources and less environmental impact. Yeah, that is correct. All, which is all a, a great thing. <laughs> all right. Jim, you, uh, you and the folks at uh, your colleagues at Clearwater have worked closely with the the industry, more specifically the manufacturers of uh, the different components, including drip irrigation, uh, uh, drip tape, and drip drip hose, and so forth, to unique uniquely bring new products to the market and address the uh, Pacific Northwest specific needs. I'm just curious. Uh, how that, uh, how that, what that looks like, and how it, uh, how it materializes, and and what some of the benefits might be of, of uh, driving that uh, that innovation, working hand in glove with the with the other manufacturers. Um, yes, Paul. Uh, I guess from my perspective, it's sort of been a, a six step process that we've initiated, and the first one is is we within Clearwater, and we try to be a progressive uh, company where we not just accept products as they currently are but try to see what there can't be for improvements. We assess what, what's the state of the art at the moment on 
any aspect of our drip irrigation, whether it be the pumping station, filter station, the field distribution, or the tape uh, itself in the field. Uh, we then work with growers to further clarify exactly what improvements they see that they could need. Uh, a recent example I might mention is uh, we spoke with growers and one of the aspects that drip irrigation has provided the onion growers here in the valley is the opportunity to move into upland areas in the valley. Uh, our, our premium onion-growing ground closer to the Snake River uh, has been the principal area for onion production for the last 40 years, 50 years, and uh, the growers refer to much of that ground as being, uh, quote, onioned out. And onions are growing on a four-year rotation, and they need fresh ground to rotate into. Well, with the introduction of drip irrigation, we've found that growers are very uh, actively seeking upland grounds that are more rolling and more topography, uh, topographical elevation changes to the field. And we were positioning drip irrigation to, to provide the opportunity for those growers to go up into that ground that had never had onions before. But we were encountering uniformity issues. So as an example here, what we did is we approached the Toro company about what we could do to improve the uniformity of dist water distribution in those upland rolling topography. And... With that, that brings me to point three, is working with manufacturers on a very specific goal. We, we go to them and say, we need this thing developed. We try to be very specific and uh, focus exactly on what can improve the grower's lot. Uh, and in that vein, we also like it when we become the testing grounds for the potential improvements. And I have to say, in the past, we've worked quite closely with Toro on their development of what has now become called flow control. And this is a product that we tested in the field before it was released so that we could get a feel and understand its strong points and weak points. And I have to say that the patience of waiting for that product to be developed properly took many, many years. Uh, we found that uh, that patience pays off well when a, a product that can potentially improve the uniformity of the crop comes out and it works properly the first year it's in commercial release. At that point, we take that product, once it's been commercially released, and figure out ways that can be most beneficial to growers. And uh, I've talked with Inge on a number of innovative ways that we are using flow control tape above and beyond what uh, you would normally expect from a product like that. The sixth step that we involve ourselves in is repeat. Uh, at that point, we reassess where we're at and restart the process. And... Uh, so we work quite closely with manufacturers and hope to improve the industry all the way across the board. Yeah, and I might add that it's been a pleasure for, you know, we manufacturing uh, folks here at Toro to work with a company as professional as you and Clearwater towards that end. I mean, the, 
the development of flow control and your help in, in doing that has resulted in a product that is unique. There's nothing like it. It's a, it's a tweener. You know, it has better uniformity than the other drip tapes without the disadvantages of fully pressure compensating products, which are, which are expensive and they lock you into the flow rate. And the way that you've used it in Oregon is, is fantastic to simplify the systems and, and deal with the water district's um, three or four week uh, uh, declines in deliveries during the summer, which uh, really threw the growers a, a curveball before before you requested flow control. So thank you for that, um, Jim. So we, but we we all know that equipment is only half the battle too. So we work together to get you that. But tell us a little bit more about how you coach or or get the growers to use the equipment optimally uh, you know there's it's different drip is different than what they were doing before it needs to be operated differently how have you approached them to get them to optimize these precision irrigation systems well actually we found Engie that it, it boils into a triangle of training training and training uh, <laughs> basically <laughs> Is that, like, is that like in real estate, location, location, location? I'm yeah, going to use just that. About. So in drip irrigation, it's training, training, and training. Got it. That's well said, Jim. Yeah. And that comes from one of the corners of that is the all-critical research that's generated from, uh, like, the Malheur Experiment Station. Uh, Clint has gone to extensive lengths to determine for example, uh, moisture levels for onions, critical moisture levels at different times of the year uh, in the growing season. And uh, so he develops criterion in which I need to find ways to uh, make available to the growers. Uh, for example, uh, Clint has identified the moisture level for onions the procedure in which he used to determine that was using a irrigation controller that could turn water off on hourly, on an hourly basis. And in our commercial level world, that's very, very difficult to do. We have to, our irrigation districts require that we take our water in 24-hour blocks. So it's been my mission as, as second part of the training uh, triad to take uh, Clint's research and uh, morph it into a usable system that our growers can do. And we did that by introducing automation where while we cannot achieve the precision that Clint did at the experiment station, uh, we were able to use a controller to do like six and eight hour sets so that uh, the optimum crop moisture level is achieved so that's that's where there's a transition from the research to the field production the other side of the training triad that I see is the growers we are continuously learning from the growers they will take our ideas and expand them in their own right and that's a two-way street we provide both Clint and I provide information to growers and in turn, the growers will uh, find improvements that they bring to us. And it's, it's been a very beneficial uh, exchange of information. Um, 
So that's that's sort of how that's been uh, adopted for for the drip irrigation here in the Treasure Valley. Um, Jim, this is Paul again. I'm just curious, uh, what advice would you give to farmers in other parts of the world or in the country uh, or in California, for example, that are challenged to manage groundwater uh, and, and surface water tr- while trying to produce uh, more high-quality crops? Um, actually, um, Clint has touched on this earlier, uh, by developing technologies that provide a positive financial incentive for growers to adopt that practice will be the one single aspect that will make that uh, improvement for the environmental side uh, work. The other thing I'd like to encourage is, is volunteerism, both on the part of the populace in general, but also the growers in particular, to where, as we've done here in the Treasure Valley, is through volunteerism and adoption of policy, of procedures to reduce, in our case, nitrates, um, we found to be very, very successful. And we encourage that sort as opposed to uh, going the route of a regulatory nature and uh, it, it's a it's a hard process to go but it benefits all of society we believe more of a carrot than a stick uh, approach is what you're uh, what you're saying right yes exactly Paul that's exactly what I was going to say the carrot is always better than the stick it's better, it's sweeter, it doesn't hurt as much. I remember that from my childhood. <laughs> All right. Well, Jim, in our closing five minutes here, I'd like to invite you to, to retell the story that you told the audience in, in, in Ontario in February when, when your boss basically told everybody you got this fantastic award. And during your... Um, response to the audience, you, you told a heartwarming story about your father. And I'd like, I'd like you to use the remaining time we have here, about five minutes, um, to tell us that again, if you could, please. Thank you, Angie. Um, I guess the story, um, I'm originally from a cow-calf ranch in western South Dakota, and uh, one aspect of uh, cattle ranching is the production of hay. And uh, one one year when I was, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, I uh, had not, I guess, to use the word soloed on, on driving the tractor, and that was a big goal for me as a child, and that was uh, quite important to me. It was a, a rite of passage, I felt, and I had spent several weeks uh, doing everything right, not getting in trouble, um, doing what I could to uh, get my dad and my uncle to uh, perhaps uh, allow me to drive the tractor. I'd ridden hundreds of hours uh, alongside them, and I felt that it was time now for me to, to drive. And my dad um, agreed finally the one, one warm early June day that, yes, it would, it would be time that we could do this. So he took me out and over the course of the next hour, hour and a half, rode with me and, and allowed me to, to solo on the tractor. 
And then uh, in his way, he just let me go for the afternoon to learn how to do what tolerances I had to turn so I didn't hit fences and how to maneuver it and learn the braking aspects and the various aspects of the, of the tractor driving. And I was really elated over this because, you know, I, it seems to be the goal of, of everybody who goes to a farm is to get the opportunity to drive a tractor. Well, I had this plan that, that finally, I thought, came to full fruitation. But what I didn't recognize in my youthful uh, exuberation was that my dad also had a plan. And the next morning, we rolled out of the house, and I thought, well, Dad, I'll just take the tractor and go out in the pasture. We had a 2,000-acre pasture west of the, of the place and uh, had our herd out there. And I said, oh, instead of using my horse today, I'll just take the tractor and go check the cows. And he said, oh, no, no, um, you know, this is, this is haying season, and uh, here, let, let's, let's hitch up the mower to the tractor and and check that out. So he spent the morning teaching me all the ins and outs of running a number five John Deere mower, uh, the various safety aspects. And believe me, Angie, you have to be very careful. You will lose fingers on a number five mower. Okay. And uh, that was all well and good. So we spent the morning training, came in for lunch, and I was kind of, well, I really just wanted to drive the tractor, Dad. Well, after we came out of lunch, my dad had come to me and said, uh, okay, Jim, what I want you to do is to mow until sundown and then turn the lights on and do two more rounds. And that's become my mantra for my entire life is do what's expected of you, then turn the lights on and do two more rounds. Do something more above and beyond what's required of you. And I've found that that has been personally satisfying, and I invite all the listeners to try in whatever career, do what, however you interpret, turn the lights on and do two more rounds. So thank you. I, uh, that, was, that, was, uh, just, that was wonderful, Jim. Thank you for sharing. And I must uh, share in the couple of minutes we have left with the audience what a treat it's been for, for me personally to uh, have known both of you uh, and to know that you're uh, truly uh, one of the highest, uh, finest, respected uh, uh, industry professionals. But not only that, true gentlemen, both of you. And I just uh, I would like to just share with our listening audience that I'm, I'm proud to, to call you a colleague and a friend. Thank you. And I would say ditto on that. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you, Jim, for sharing that story. Um, I uh, I remember it, and I um, will try to live it as well. You know, do what's expected and turn on the lights and do two more rounds. And uh, here we are at 659, Rob. Um, well, I can't do any more rounds because NBC News comes on and I have to get off. <laughs> well, I don't think we can do two more rounds tonight, no. but we'll do it next time. I don't want to be in FCC jail. So anyway, we appreciate it. It was a great show, guys. And uh, thanks to our guests. And uh, join us next week on the Water Zone Show. We'll get back to uh, residential commercial stuff and uh, have some great guests coming up. And uh, don't forget to uh, do a lot of things. And, and uh, But most importantly, as Mike and I always say, think blue. Good night, everybody. <laughs>